Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity, and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. The following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Melbourne, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. In this episode's conversation, Jamie Skeller joins Florence Guild to explain blockchain in simple terms. He will walk us through the Horizon State story and get us to think big picture about the opportunity that blockchain-enabled disruption presents, as well as the risks and opportunities that come along with it. Technologist and entrepreneur Jamie has spent two decades designing, building, and advising of businesses across blockchain, IoT, and even future food. Former executive director at MyVote, a not-for-profit democratic movement, Jamie has since gone on to co-found one of Australia's first blockchain projects, Horizon State. Our blockchain-based future, a Florence Guild conversation with Jamie Skeller. So, I thought, there's probably a few things that I um, thought I should talk about. One is, I guess, a, a very um, simple explanation of what it is that makes blockchain so secure, kind of how it works at a high level, giving people um, an opportunity to, to dive deeper. Um, the explanation that I typically give is one that's not technically perfect, um, but I think it's the simplest way to articulate it. Um, in a way that's understandable by pretty much everybody, uh, including my parents, uh, including my colleagues, um, and I reckon you could probably explain it to uh, to a teenager this way as well. So it's it's good um, because it it really serves as um, a way to uh, to dive into a, a funnel um, and start learning more. Um, it's probably also important outside of the work we're doing also to to give you guys some examples of how it's being used in other verticals in other industries, the kinds of applications for it. You know, at the moment. Blockchain uh, in the media is kind of, it's amusing, you know, blockchain is kind of heralded as this silver bullet that's going to solve all the world's problems. Uh, but on the flip side, you've got cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, which are obviously two very different things, which are, you know, either uh, Ponzi scams or, um, uh, you know, fake news of some description. Um, but uh, they are separate and they're both uh, incredibly important. Um, and I'll give you a little bit of uh, detail on my thoughts about um, why that's the case as well. Uh, and then of course I'll give you uh, a rundown specifically on what's happening with Horizon State uh, and my vote and democracy and voting and, and the sorts of stuff we're working on very specifically. Um, and yeah, of course, if anybody's got questions along the way, just jump in and ask them um, as I catch a breath and, and we can talk more then. Otherwise, we'll have a bit of a Q&A afterwards. Um, before we start, does anybody have any pressing questions, any stuff you've been thinking about uh, in respect to blockchain or Horizon State or democracy or technology more generally that you wanted to uh, have a chit chat or should I dive straight in? Yeah, probably, you know, what is it meant to replace down the track or at least <coughs> compete with, you know, sure. amongst the existing solutions? Yeah, well, uh, um, ultimately, blockchain is actually, it's, 
it doesn't do it credit. It certainly doesn't uh, give credit to the possibilities of application, but what we're talking about is a synchronised record book, the sort of book you're writing in right now, a digitised synchronised record book, uh, in other terms a synchronised ledger or a synchronised database. Now this sounds pretty boring, um, but when you remove ownership of this database from any one institution or organisation or government or individual, that's when these really, really profound use cases come into play and I guess ultimately uh, the question of what is blockchain designed to replace, um, if you want to talk really high level philosophically it's kind of designed to replace um, how society organises itself, uh, but in more practical terms it's designed uh, I think um, or at least provides the opportunity to design a, a much more equitable, disintermediated society. So where we can strip um, some of the vacuums uh, out of power and wealth and start to think about ways to organise ourselves in a much more peer-to-peer -peer fashion uh, without needing to lose the trust either. I mean, we really use these centralised institutions because they provide um, guarantees and IOUs and we know that people are verified on a certain service or um, money is being received via a certain bank and that provides some assurance. Um, and this is now assurance through technology rather through some kind of institution um, or brand. So I'll, I'll touch on that a bit more in a, in a second as well. Um, so first off, the kind of definition about um, blockchain. Uh, the question I get asked pretty frequently in regards to uh, voting using this kind of tech, given it's what I'm working on, is how can you be so sure it's secure and, and how does that security work? Um, I actually always pull this back to a conversation about cryptocurrency because fundamentally our tech and cryptocurrency works in the same way. It's just that we're using transactions for different purposes to, to mean different things. Um, so if we think about Bitcoin and the fact that it is a line in a record book, it's a, uh, every transaction. If I were to send any one of you a, a fraction of a Bitcoin, it would, it would effectively be submitted to a network of nodes which are listening for transactions um, and it would be applied as a line item to a record book. Now, the, the way that um, you can be sure that this, uh, this fraction of a Bitcoin is really transferred um, is because of uh, the consensus mechanisms and algorithms um, which uh, are able to deliver that trust. Now, it's probably also important um, to interject and say um, that unto itself is kind of the, kill the killer app. Um, people are talking about really um, what, is, what is the big deal with blockchain? What is the one thing that's going to, to make or break it? Um, but these, these consensus algorithms, these proving algorithms, are proof of work and um, the fact that we can uh, achieve um, trust without an intermediary really is it. Um, the fact we can transfer a digital asset um, and be sure that ownership has been transferred is it. Um, and, and to give you an example of, I mean, it sounds, it just makes sense, right? But if you think um, about even a few years ago, the idea that the, the government might decide that MP3s are now legal national tender, it would be impossible for a merchant to really understand whose MP3 is the one they should be accepting. Because of course I can copy an MP3 one million times and I have a, a million bucks. Um, and if I give you an MP3, um, I may have just maintained a copy. And so the idea that now I can send you something digital and ownership has truly been reassigned, uh, that's, that's a big, big deal. Um, and so pretending for a moment that, uh, coming back to the, the analogy, trying to explain how the security works, if I was to transfer a fraction of a Bitcoin um, to any one of you, um, but we think about that transaction uh, in an analog setting and instead of a fraction of a Bitcoin, we're now talking about something of value. Let's just call it $5 of value. It could be a thing, it could be $5 worth of Australian dollars, $5 worth of value. Um, we don't want to use an intermediary 
but we want to make sure that there is some kind of record of the transaction. So uh, in perpetuity, we can look back and make sure that that's the case and make sure that everything's above board. And so if I was to transfer you $5 worth of value, you couldn't come back later and say, hey, I never got that. Um, to accomplish this, what we might do is we might ask um, 200 um, or more, uh, sometimes 2,000, sometimes 20,000, uh, trusted friends, colleagues, associates um, over to our house where the transaction is going to take place and we get them all to bring their record books uh, and a pen or a pencil. And we get them to witness this transaction. They witness the participants, they witness the time, they witness the location, they make sure the, the signatures are valid, all these kinds of things. They all write it in their record book and there is a shared reality of this transaction. Um, and then they all go home. So some of them live around the corner and some of them live across the street and some of them live on the opposite side of the world. Uh, and now, conceptually, as, as a bad actor, somebody who maliciously wants to um, change this outcome for, for their own gain or others, if they wanted to change that $5 worth of value to be 50, uh, conceptually, they would have to break into the homes of every record book holder simultaneously um, and change that line item without waking anyone up. That's conceptually how it works. Uh, and so, yep, jump in. Yeah, so uh, the question for the podcast uh, is, is, is it everybody or is it 51% basically? And yes, from a technical standpoint, you would need to take control of 51% of those ledgers to basically uh, be that point of truth. Um, but it's not quite that simple. There's lots of other technical realities at play here. Um, now, first and foremost, taking control of, uh, taking 51% control of any network um, would probably require more than the coordination of a nation state, where we're talking tens or even hundreds of billions of dollars to achieve it. Um, and then depending on how far you want to go back in time to change the record, um, it would be much, much more. Because this isn't about achieving 51% um, and instantly just owning it. It's about 51% and then potentially forking it. And if you want to go back in time and change a record of transaction that's three weeks old, then you have 51% of what the network was once, and now you are trying to catch up by effectively reprocessing all of these transactions with fraudulent nodes. And so then there's a long period of you actually trying to reach up to get to parity, because the other, the other sort of chain, the fork, doesn't, doesn't stop. It keeps on processing transactions as well with legitimate actors. Every single block in a blockchain um, references the previous block. It's, it's got the data from the last one, what we call hashed, um, and every single block comes with proof of work, which is uh, intense compute um, to actually solve the, pro solve the puzzle, so to speak, and append the block. So this is, you know, it gets pretty technical, uh, but ultimately what we're talking about uh, is something that in layman's terms I'd say is basically impossible. Um, putting on a computer scientist hat, you'd have to say it's highly improbable. Um, but either way, it's, it's a feat that not too many people are really worried about. Uh, and if you want an idea of, I guess, uh, the robustness of these solutions, you just have to look at what the, what the market cap, what the value of the assets already on these chains are. Now, the, the public chains themselves are hundreds of billions of dollars. So for anybody who can figure out how to do that, um, there'd be a reward of hundreds of billions of dollars for them. Uh, and it hasn't happened, and it probably won't. There's some, uh, there's some technology that underpins all this, which is fundamentally unbreakable at the moment. Uh, you elliptic uh, curve digital signature algorithms, um, SHA-256 encryption. These same technologies also underpin our health system, they underpin modern banking. And so if anybody sort of does manage to find a way to crack blockchains, uh, they'll also have found a way to crack every other institution that we depend on. So um, quantum computers, may do this, but with quantum decryption comes quantum encryption, uh, and we're already seeing a lot of great work in regards to what we call quantum resistant chains to protect against this sort of stuff. Um, 
so yeah, look, in, in a nutshell, uh, and in very simple terms, that's more or less why it's secure. That's why a, a Bitcoin transaction can be trusted. And that's why if we are retrofitting uh, transactions to represent votes for an, uh, an electoral process or a body corporate vote or a shareholder vote, that is also why that vote can be trusted as legitimate and not tampered with. And that's why the, the result can be trusted. So the, the, the first um, publicly used and adopted and well-known blockchain is, of course, the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, pseudo-anonymous character, didn't refer to it as a blockchain, but ultimately it, it has inspired uh, what we now call blockchain and lots of other variants of that, as well as some absolute clones. Um, now, it's all open source, which is probably the most important part um, of any of these solutions in the sense that um, the proving algorithms, the software that runs nodes, um, it's all perfectly open source and it's collaborated in an open source manner. Um, and so this means that if you are a programmer and you want to contribute to the Bitcoin blockchain or many other public blockchains, you're more than welcome to. The repositories are there for you to find bugs in, for you to commit code to, for you to review, for you to discuss with peers. Um, but from, a, from a, a public use case perspective, it means that um, everything from top to bottom, from end to end, is perfectly auditable. Um, you understand whether anything nefarious is going on because you can, you can literally see the nuts and bolts, you can read the DNA. Um, in terms of the networks themselves, um, again, it's, it's, it's all peer-to-peer. -peer. So you can stand up a computer at home to join the network and start processing those transactions. By processing transactions, you'll have had to commit hardware to the network and you'll also um, be raising your energy bill, your power bill, because uh, the, the compute cycles required to do so, uh, they use a bit, of, a bit of power, at least with a proof of work, uh, proving algorithm. Um, but again, completely peer-to-peer. -peer. So a lot of these networks now are tens of thousands um, in number at any one given point in time. I think Ethereum's at around 25,000 nodes at any one given point in time. Um, and it's all these nodes which um, collude and, and, and find consensus in the transactions. So they listen and they process. Um, and it's effectively um, yeah, distributed, decentralized, open source, um, pseudo-anonymous. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a powerful concept, especially when you start thinking about the applications um, for this technology, which is sort of um, taking us into the next part of the conversation, which includes what we're working on. Um, but before I talk about what we're doing, I think some other examples are, are probably helpful. So if you think about um, benefits of having a record which is immutable and irreversible, um, it's post-unforgeable, um, all of these great properties. And then you also think about um, what this enables in terms of currency, um, borderless, near instant settlement, um, low transaction fees, um, then all of a sudden there's a whole lot of incredible ideas uh, that spring to mind in regards to the applications. Um, one of my favourite is, uh, is Power Ledger. Um, over in Perth, and they've effectively used this, this distributed shared uh, record book, this ledger, um, to enable peer-to-peer -peer energy trade. So instead of you buying energy from uh, Origin or Energy Australia or one of the big giants, um, if you're on a, a microgrid, you can now throw up some solar panels and trade energy autonomously and instantly uh, with your neighbours. So if you have excess stored in your batteries tonight, uh, that can on-sell that to your neighbours who are in need. Uh, and because Again, settlements are virtually instant. Um, transaction fees are negligible. Uh, decimal places run down to 18, as an example. It means you can trade incredibly small amounts of things very fast, very cheap, um, without permission. Um, and this is, uh, it's quite incredible when you think about the opportunity for nano transactions. Um, you know, we have a, we have a limit, um, really, to, to what we can do with um, most fiat 
based on the fact it kind of only goes down to do decimal places, kind of exceptions. But um, this, this is really opening up brand new ideas uh, for trade and commerce uh, and autonomous commerce as well. Um, so I like that idea. I mean, I think it's also a, a social good idea that we can start redistributing wealth, that we can save the environment, um, you know, by using solar instead of uh, coal and all these sorts of things. So PowerEdge is doing great and there's another few companies which are doing um, similar things. So really, really cool stuff. Um, I assume everybody here uses something like Spotify or Google Music or Apple Music. Um, so there are a few other startups in this space which are um, looking to create more equitable relationships between uh, consumers and artists uh, by giving more or less all of it to those artists. And so if you imagine for a moment that instead of a um, large centralised private listed business such as Spotify which is trying to appease shareholders, build uh, profit, build capital, um, has huge overheads, you know, offices all around the world, a tremendous amount of staff, too many staff um, I'd argue. And instead you think about that model um, as one set up to be a foundation um, where it's effectively a not-for-profit. Um, then all of a sudden the costs to create that interface and maintain that interface are, are dramatically reduced. And using all the same great properties which we've just discussed, um, instead of sending $13 to Spotify and really a couple bucks goes to the artist that you listen to, um, a couple bucks goes to the foundation and virtually everything else not only goes to the artists but very specifically the artists that you've been listening to. And so if you happen to have listened to only Radiohead this month, <coughs> which I've done a couple times, then all of your money would go to Radiohead that month. Uh, not that they need it, they're doing very, very fine. <laughs> um, what else have we got? Uh, in terms of enterprise uh, and business thinking, uh, most businesses these days in a very short amount of time have gone from relying on uh, private centralised infrastructure, sometimes hosted locally, and um, uh, compute locally for storage um, and for actual uh, CPU and GPU compute. And now a lot of that is in the cloud. So cloud storage, cloud compute, you've got AWS, you've got Box and Dropbox and OneDrive, all these sorts of things. Um, and so there's a number of startups that have blown up in this space and are trying new uh, ways to really disintermediate those organisations by um, decentralising the compute and the storage for those kinds of tasks. So if you um, imagine that instead of your file being uploaded to Dropbox, which is basically uploading the whole file to your um, closest uh, piece of infrastructure, their closest server farm, and then that is replicated across their network of, of mirrors all around the world. So even if you go over to Europe for business, you can still get that file nice and fast. Instead, it's kind of carved up locally on your machine um, into hundreds or thousands or millions of pieces. And every one of those pieces, uh, copies are made of for redundancy. And these go off not to Dropbox, but to all of our computers. We've decided to put our computers onto a network. Um, and we've said, we will let X percent of our hard drive be taken up for miscellaneous cloud storage. Uh, and by giving up that hard drive space, we are remunerated for it in a crypto asset, in a digital cryptocurrency of sorts. Um, and anybody who wants to access that space pays in this same uh, native asset, in this cryptocurrency. Um, and so instead of storing with a, a centralized institution such as Dropbox, um, all of your files are stored with other people all around the world. Of course, they're still encrypted. Um, only you own the keys to, to unlock them and, and view them as a whole. But it means that you also get services that look right now are currently inefficient comparatively, but that won't always be the case. But they're also very cheap in comparison. And the same goes for business, um, especially when it comes to uh, GPU and CPU compute. If you want to render something in 3D, or you're a developer working on 
um, some machine learning algorithms, but you don't have the horsepower uh, to get the work rendered uh, or processed or compiled fast enough locally, um, then you can lean on new crypto asset uh, categories and new crypto-based businesses. One's called Gollum. Uh, there are many others now where, again, <clears throat> you as end users can stick your computer on a network and offer up your CPU or GPU cycles. You can be remunerated in this uh, crypto asset and, and the other end would pay in that crypto asset. And again, if we, if we use Amazon, for example, there's about a 10 to 100-fold saving with this kind of approach. But there's also a 100 to 250-fold inefficiency to this approach right now. Uh, but that will improve uh, over time as, as these technologies um, improve. Um, so where do we go? Spotify, music, we got energy, uh, file storage. Uh, they're probably the main ideas that spring to mind. Other, um, of course, other than voting, uh, which is what I'm working on. So, so I spoke um, at a conference in Adelaide just a couple of days ago called Better Boards Conference. And uh, most of the board members and executives there were from not-for-profits, in fact, and some of them from, from charities, but otherwise broader NFPs uh, and NGOs. And um, one of the questions, is, questions was, well, in practical terms, how can, um, how can blockchain be applied to what we're doing? And what do you see the role of banks in our collective future? And, and the answer was that in the near term, um, traditional financial services are unavoidable. In the mid term, um, the role of banks um, will be to get out the way, uh, but they, won't, they really won't be necessary. Um, UNICEF um, just recently um, installed some JavaScript into a, um, a new microsite they fired up, which would let you basically visit this website run this JavaScript, and again, use your CPU and GPU to mine cryptocurrency and donate that to the currency, uh, donate that to the, to, the, to the charity. And so you could pretty much just fire up your web browser, leave that on overnight, and sure, it would cost you power to do this, but the point is that you're donating to them. And so you use power, which is a cost to you, uh, but they are getting cryptocurrency in return. Um, and the upside for them is that if the crypto market, cryptocurrency markets go up, well, then the amount goes up um, exponentially, potentially far beyond the money you've spent um, to mine that cryptocurrency. Um, so that's just one example. Um, we're also developing a, a, a charitable um, donations application at Horizon State, actually. So 5% of all Horizon State revenue gets donated to charity. And we want, uh, on a monthly basis, supporters of our company, anybody, members of the public, to be able to vote um, on the charitable causes um, which are in the running to receive that money this month. Uh, and so we're partnered up with the Red Cross and WWF and uh, Care for Africa and Street Smart and a few other others. Um, and the idea is that each month they would promote a charitable cause through this application. Um, and then um, end users would be able to donate cryptocurrency their own, but also effectively vote where Horizon State's 5% should go. Um, and this is really cool because obviously it takes out the, the typical financial intermediaries and all of their fees, um, but it also creates this perfectly accountable, perfectly transparent sort of uh, breadcrumb of the money coming in and the money going out. Um, so all of a sudden you can start to um, be, I guess, much more open and actually much more accountable as to how much money you kept for the organisation and how much actually goes to the causes in question. So lots of really cool stuff in that space happening as well. There is a lot of um, ownership, sometimes detrimental um, ownership <coughs> placed on end users using this technology. Developer tools are young. Uh, we still need a lot, a lot more um, quality design work done in this space. But um, I'm also not uh, a sort of a blockchain or Bitcoin or anything else maximalist. I don't believe that this is, should be everything and always, but I believe it, it should be an option. Um, 
I don't want um, self-sovereign uh, asset management to be forced onto every individual, just like I don't want self-sovereign ID management to be forced onto every individual. It should absolutely be a choice, and there are pros and cons to both. Uh, and in, in a lot of cases, it makes sense to have both. And so I, I foresee a sort of near and mid-term future where lots of banks uh, will provide financial services uh, many of the same ones they do for fiat currencies, such as Australian dollars right now, for cryptocurrencies soon, as one example. Because while I'm happy to hold a private key to store some of my crypto assets, that is ultimately a whole lot of risk. If I lose that key, or I delete that key, or lose the hard drive, as we've seen people lose tens of millions in their Bitcoin, um, then it's just gone, and there is no recourse. There's no, there's no, there's no bank to call, uh, and so the, the, same, the same holds true for other kinds of self-sovereign data uh, ownership and management. Um, so I, I think in terms of insurances and other financial products, um, banks are want, they're gonna wanna get into this, um, because it means that they can expand their range um, of products and services to the public. Um, and it means that the public who aren't willing to take all of those risks themselves still can have the opportunity to hold these kinds of assets um, without needing to take that risk. In, in practical terms, how exactly it would work, it would probably vary financial institution to institution and the, and the specific terms would vary as well. Uh, wouldn't necessarily be backups, maybe there'd be insurances just to cover it if there was ever theft or loss, but you know, the, the, the point is that you could be sure that if all of a sudden your crypto balance went to zero, you've got someone to call uh, and they'll sort it out for you in the same way that if someone steals your credit card and runs off and buys a television, they've got your back. Um, but there are lots of uh, brand new examples where this would come in particularly handy, especially thinking about self-sovereign uh, data management uh, if we think about the debacle at Facebook. So right now these, these typical um, organizational and commercial models um, represent us as products um, because it's our data that is getting monetized on these services. And the only reward we get for those services is to use them. Um, but in a future uh, where we might see some social networks pop up on this kind of infrastructure, not only would you get to use the service in question, but you would be, again, remunerated uh, for access to your information, which um, they are profiting from. So, for example, uh, and because, again, we can drill down into sort of, you know, 18 decimal places, um, if, um, if a certain piece of information about my browsing history or about my identity is going to be valuable to, for example, a Facebook advertiser um, or a social network advertiser, um, I could more or less offer to give up that and just that, just this one time, um, for a fraction of a cent. Um, and you set up your permissions and all of a sudden uh, you're making money while they're still making money. They might still make 100% margin on that piece of data, but the point is that we're creating a relationship which is um, far more equitable, uh, it distributes wealth more evenly, uh, and everybody wins as opposed to just this giant company. So lots of, lots of great opportunities in that space as well. And how about unethical transactions? I mean, how would this be monitored or you know, screened for? You know, pretty much if, if it's peer-to-peer, -peer, you know, anything can happen, you know, uh, the best and the worst. You know? Well, look, peer-to-peer -peer transactions aren't new. I mean, this, is, this has been happening for thousands of years. It's called cash. It was once called barter, gold coins. Um, Money-wise, yeah, but you, know, you, can, you can imagine this is used for like, maybe much less noble purposes and potentially you know, uh, criminal ones. Look, I think the, 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 in terms of criminality, the, the best and simplest way to be an anonymous criminal is still just to use cash. Um, because these ledgers are perfectly accountable, they're perfectly transparent, that if one of your transactions is given up for any reason whatsoever, then the gig's up. Everything else is linked and everything is identifiable. And so um, after a lot of fears initially about the use of this kind of technology, now law enforcement agencies are rubbing their hands. They're loving it um, because 
all they have to do uh, through social engineering uh, or otherwise is identify a transaction to identify the entire outfit. Um, so it's actually making their job easier rather than harder now. Um, but it's probably also a good time to mention that this is, this is really important stuff uh, in terms of what I believe is, is uh, uh, basic human liberties uh, in, in modern society. Um, for thousands of years, we've, we've had the liberty of being able to trade with one another, peer-to-peer, -peer, without institutions, without middlemen. Now, with cash disappearing from our lives, um, we're moving very, very quickly towards a world which um, is effectively becoming, or could become, a surveillance state, in the sense that, let's pretend that the tap-and-go is so convenient that we pretty much stop using cash. In Australia, I, we're not too far off. I think about 65% of our transactions are in a ballpark are now digital. Um, so it's, it's a big deal, and it's only going to continue that trend. Like, it's not slowing down. It's becoming more and more digital. Um, and that puts us in... Uh, I guess, pers uh, significant personal risk into the future. I'm sure we have a, a relatively stable, um, albeit incompetent, democracy, and we have a stable economy, but this won't be the way forever. Uh, it just won't. We will find ourselves in significant trouble sooner or later. We managed to, to dodge the last crisis, the financial crisis. We may dodge, an dodge another, or maybe we'll, we'll be the worst out of it uh, of anybody. We just don't know. But what we see around the world is when um, these sorts of events happen, um, money is confiscated, money is frozen, governments lock up banks, governments take a clip of the ticket, um, and so cryptocurrency is kind of like a replacement for cash. What you might have stored under the bed or the transactions you might have had with cash previously, cryptocurrency is really the just-in-time replacement for that sort of stuff, um, so that we can maintain at least some self-sovereign uh, asset management uh, in the face of what is becoming an increasingly digitised world where these centralised institutions run all of it. So it's important, it's really important. Um, and yes, there are bad things that will happen. People will do bad stuff with it, um, but that's always the case. Um, with every brand new technology, uh, criminals are normally the first to use it, uh, and that's fine. But the good technology, which has a lot of positive, uh, truly beneficial use cases, that always ends up being more so the case than the bad. But you've always got to take the good with the bad. Um, and I've said for a long time now that it's not really technology that we need to try and stop or slow or fix, it's people. Right. Technology is agnostic. Uh, all technology can be used for good and bad. Uh, nuclear fission, uh, nuclear warheads. Right. Um, so it's really a matter of humanity rather than technology. Uh, and we need to be focusing on our traits rather than the traits of technology. It's actually all open source, but can anybody sort of step into that, start owning parts of it or putting sort of firewalls and, you know, denying access to <sighs> user groups or, you know. Mm. So, you know, China's talked um, off and on over the last few years about banning Bitcoin. Um, to, to truly ban Bitcoin or ban cryptocurrency, you kind of have to ban the internet. Uh, and China have tried to ban the internet as well, in a way. They've got the, the Great Firewall. But even with the Great Firewall, um, literally hundreds of millions of individuals in China just find ways around it. Uh, if they want to do something, they can. The, the only way for this not to exist is for the internet not to exist. Um, and in terms of control, this comes back to the talk earlier about these decentralized distributed networks, the kind of compute that would need to be committed in money and energy terms to try and take control. So um, I think for the moment, it seems like we're relatively safe. Again, uh, layman's terms, impossible. Scientific terms, highly improbable. Mm. Um, which sort of leads us to Horizon State. Um, and so. For those of you who didn't hear Adam speak last year, I started working with Adam about three years ago. Um, he has a, an incredible vision for, for democratic reform, uh, creating a more direct democracy within our representative one, 
creating mechanisms to better inform the constituency that is participating in those collaborative decision-making processes, uh, engaging them more frequently, taking no money from big business, two terms max to avoid career politicians, all kinds of awesome stuff which really, really resonated with me. Um, but to achieve this vision, part of the problem space was how do we actually engage people frequently um, and do so securely because sending out postal votes and, and standing up polling stations is really expensive and slow. Uh, we just spent $120 million on a same-sex marriage plebiscite, which would have cost about a hundred, uh, sorry, about a million bucks with our tech, um, so astronomical savings. Um, and so this is what got me thinking about uh, technological solutions to achieve that outcome of uh, more frequent and immediate dialogue with people who are affected by the issues that they should have a say on. Um, coincidentally, I'd been doing a lot of research in, in blockchain at the time, and it just sort of came on like a light bulb, that if we have these, for example, uh, again, uh, for example purposes only, a Bitcoin transaction, which is post-unforgeable and perfectly accountable, perfectly transparent, it's immutable, it's irreversible, um, then these all make great properties of a vote and a, and a voting system. Uh, and so that, that led me down this path of thinking about um, how that could actually be achieved uh, through smart contracts or otherwise. And we built an MVP over the course of uh, just a few months, and it worked. Um, and then we started getting all kinds of interesting knocks on the door um, from enterprise, from football clubs, from NGOs, saying, hey, we can, this is awesome, we can kind of use this as well because we want our constituency, be it a staff or a citizenship, to trust us more. We really want to make sure that the relationship we have um, is more open, that the gap is narrower, uh, that people have confidence in us. Um, and the beauty is that it usually works out cheaper than traditional processes, but even where it doesn't work out cheaper than traditional processes, the perceived cost uh, um, didn't outweigh um, the benefit in terms of being able to establish greater confidence and trust in the people that you deal with in that constituency is a, is a, is a highly valuable thing. Um, and that's when we had the conversation, Adam and I, to, to spin this out into um, something else because with my vote not accepting money from, from big business, um, you know, trying to build a, an international democratic movement um, is hard on individual donations. So we thought if we can commercialise this technology it would help support my vote. Um, and we, uh, we decided to do that. Initially we thought about moving um, the company over to the west coast of the USA um, and running an IPO. We ended up based on what we were building being a blockchain-based technology and this ICO thing that was happening, this token sales stuff that was happening, to probably think about that route instead. Um, I'd just left my last startup and I was having a holiday overseas with the wife um, when I, I shot them an email and said, let's not move to the USA because also I don't like it there very much. Um, but there's this cool idea that means we wouldn't need to move and we can raise from people all around the world. Um, and over the course of the next few months, we worked dil diligently to, to set up that process and, and raise money using this new novel uh, capital raising mechanism. Uh, highly stressful because it wasn't just new to us, but it was new to the world. Um, but also ended up being pretty effective. Um, we raised about one and a half mil um, in Ethereum. And, and we also kept 40% of the asset which we sold, so this cryptographic token, uh, we kept 40% for operational capital, which we've only just started um, having to, to dive into uh, to, to use for various uh, business expenses. Um, it, was, it was quite overwhelming, the entire process, uh, but also very, very positive. Um, 
as a part of this, we, we wanted to obviously go on a bit of a PR roadshow um, to talk about the tech in important places. Um, and what started as a three-day trip for me to, uh, to South Korea, I, I got a call from one of um, our advisors, Jane Thomason. She's, she's awesome. She's involved in a lot of blockchain for good and blockchain for social impact, um, blockchain for poor over in the UK. Um, and she gave me a call and said, there's this massive um, smart cities and mayors forum conference in South Korea, and I've got you a, a spot um, to speak um, on stage with me if, if you want. And I said, that sounds amazing. That'd be a, a great kickoff to this campaign to raise money this way. Uh, and also, obviously, explore customer opportunities, partner opportunities. Uh, and she said, all right, excellent, it's tomorrow. Uh, and so I threw some clothes in my backpack and I flew off to Korea five hours later. Uh, and then I was on my train, uh, on, a, on the train on the way home um, from Seoul to the airport to fly back to Melbourne when I had another call from another advisor um, saying that we've got uh, an opportunity to speak in Ukraine. Uh, so I cancelled my flight home because that was also tomorrow uh, and flew off to Ukraine. And then it was United Nations headquarters in New York City and uh, SAP TechEd in Las Vegas, um, decentralised in Cyprus, uh, D10E in Gibraltar, uh, was London and all kinds of places. And so it was, uh, I've unfortunately spent a lot of time away from the wife uh, who's now pregnant, we're expecting in October, so I need to stop the travel very soon. Um, but it, it was really um, humbling and exciting to have received so much uh, incredible um, interest from around the world. People really, really saw the value in this and I think it's probably, well in my opinion at least, it's, it's one of the clearest opportunities uh, for blockchain to have an immediate impact. Just based on the properties of the technology alone, we don't need to wait years to do this. This, this is an emerging technology and while some of these ideas can't really be achieved for a few years yet, this is simple. It's a transaction that's recorded that can't be changed and thus we can provide a record of result which can't be tampered with. Um, and by doing so, we also have lots of other great knock-on benefits. So having an election which can't be, uh, wherein which the results can't be tampered with is a great result in various developing nations where it often is and it's just actually expected. Um, but in places like the US, we can increase participation because when you can vote from your pocket instead of needing, going, needing to go uh, to a centralised place of, of polling, um, then you're probably more inclined to do so. Because it's digital, we can distribute information uh, in more meaningful ways. Uh, and in developing nations, we're heading to a place of polling can sometimes be a life-threatening ordeal. Um, we, we let them um, participate remotely from the mobile phone. Um, but it doesn't always have to be from the mobile phone. We have some opportunities uh, in Europe to run elections more or less as they exist right now. But instead of a paper postal, po uh, sorry, a paper a ballot box, uh, it's an e-voting machine. Um, but unlike the e-voting machines in the United States, it won't cast the votes to the local machine and store them there. Um, it will actually submit them straight to the blockchain as transactions. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, I've been working on this tech and on this project more broadly for about three years now. Uh, it's been a, a really hard and uh, amazing three years. Uh, about a year with Horizon State specifically, having spun the technology out. Um, but it's quite incredible, the, the attention we've attracted and, and some of the opportunities on the horizon. Everywhere from um, uh, basically governments underpinning various services using our tech in the Pacific Islands, through to the election which I talked about um, uh, over in Europe. Um, and um, there's also some great community enablement work happening in Indonesia as well. So yeah, it's, um, look, it's, I'm proud to have, to have played a role in this because I think um, it's going to, these, these, it really has generated some ripples which I think are going to go on to turn into waves and, and crash into a, a shoreline with spectacular effect at some point. I think that, um, you know, 
this is really the catalyst for some important societal change. Um, and as I've said on a, a few recent interviews, I think that within five to ten years that any politician or government um, rejecting the use of this kind of technology, um, it'll effectively be a, a proclamation of, of corruption because there's, there's just no reason whatsoever that you wouldn't want to better secure your democratic process. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's blockchain and that's Horizon State. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Amy. Thank you for this was very intimate and nice conversation. Yeah. Thank you very much. Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit florenceguild.com.